We are born free. And we will die free. The time in between, though, that's complicated. In that time, governments, institutions, and our egos will limit our ability to find true freedom in this life. These are real stories of real people overcoming the odds, persevering in justice, and unlocking their potential. Welcome to Finding Freedom. Here's your host, John Oderman. Hey, hey, welcome in for another episode of Finding Freedom right here on the Lions of Liberty Podcast Network. And guys, you know, this is a first for me. I think so. I'm I'm not 100% sure, but I'm recording this early on a Monday morning because, uh, you know, things just didn't come together for, uh, for Sunday night for me recording. And uh, the guest that I had booked, well, she got sick. We weren't able to reschedule in time. Interview pushed back. That's how it happens. So um, apologize for dropping this a little bit later in your, your uh, podcast feed on a Monday. Um, I'm sure that you'll be able to uh, take it over it and deal with it. I had a fun weekend. The reason why I wasn't feeling up to uh, to podcasting on Sunday night, I spent the weekend in the Poconos, the Pocono Mountains in northeastern Pennsylvania. So about a six-hour drive from where I live outside, uh, outside Pittsburgh in southwestern Pennsylvania. But great weekend with uh, some of my fraternity brothers from college. Um, you know, just eating tons of food, drinking tons of beer, uh, telling stories and uh, laughing, <laughs> laughing too much. But it was fun. Got to ski on Friday, skied at uh, Elk Mountain, which I'm, I'm an okay skier. You know, I ski about once, twice a year at most. Um, after I get my my you know ski legs back under me, I can uh, I can be dangerous out there. You know. Maybe not a good way, but um, the conditions were surprisingly good in the morning in that I was expecting like more slopes to be closed and it wasn't like icy. Um, the, uh, you know, the, the man-made snow was in, in decent condition, um, but as the day went on and it warmed up, it got a little bit slushy, a little sloppy, especially at the bottom when you come into, you know, your easier easier runs when you get close to the bottom of the mountain, the, uh, the green circles. And that was the worst part for me was navigating that. Cause you would get like these like freaking mounds of like slush. And one time, actually my last run of the day, I'm coming down, just easing in, you know, I'm getting to the bottom of the mountain. There's a slide, the signs everywhere that say slow, you know, and, uh, I just caught my ski whipped around, wiped out right underneath the lift. That's always the best when you wipe out, and you're directly underneath people who can just point at you and uh, and laugh for how uh, how stupid you are. But it was a fun trip. I didn't get hurt, and that's that's what matters to me. Um, so what happened this weekend? What's happening now in the world? We're gonna talk about that stuff today. If you haven't been able to tell by now, today is a solo episode, and we're gonna talk about the border deal. Get into some things there. I'll give my opinion on ultimately where I think this leads to. Um, we're going to talk about some comments made by Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell, um, which could be construed as him saying 
Americans are in fact lazy. And uh, within that, we'll talk about what he thinks about the commercial real estate market, which is kind of scary once you start digging into what he thinks and how far off he's been on some things in the past. Um, and I got a video I'm going to play of a teacher breaking down and teaching a student how to think critically with regards to their opinion on J.K. Rowling. So um, fun stuff there. This will be a, a shorter show. Like I said, um, crazy weekend. Getting this out to you on an early Monday morning as I take a sip of coffee. Uh, delicious. Um, all right. So this this border deal. Um, the senators that came together on this deal, um, Senators James Lankford, Republican from Oklahoma, and Senator Chris Murphy, Democrat from Connecticut, uh, Connecticut and Kristen Sinema, Independent from Arizona. Essentially, she was a Democrat. So essentially two Democrats and a Republican coming together on a bipartisan Senate deal. What was in it? Um, what was included? So let's just go through some of the large chunks here. And you're going to quickly realize this is not a, an immigration bill. This is a funding Ukraine and Israel bill as much as it is anything else. So it's a $118 billion bipartisan agreement. Whenever you hear bipartisan agreement, just think the worst possible agreement that could be come to the worst from both sides, all included in one agreement. That's what bipartisan means. Not that a partisan agreement would have been better. Um, it's just Congress and the Senate are just so, so screwed up, but let's go through what was in it. All right, let's break this down. So the bill, which is an illegal immigration bill and figuring this out and getting immigration under control it would allow for, with nothing triggered to prevent it, 1.5 million illegals to enter the U.S. every single year. So it doesn't seem like that's doing much to curb illegal immigration. Um, what else is in it? Allocates $2.3 towards um, NGOs, non-governmental organizations, and other organizations which that traffic illegal immigrants in the, into the country. It gives $14.1 billion in security assistance to Israel, because why would you not you know, fund Israel in an illegal immigration bill? It gives a huge, massive $60 billion in support of Ukraine. Seemingly, uh, just like with Israel, of course, we gotta, we got to fund our buddies uh, and, and protect the border over there in Ukraine between uh, Ukraine and Russia. Uh, the bill gives the president the ability to end this border emergency that is declared um, at any time that he wants to. It also carves out $2.3 billion for refugee entrance assistance. That's that same um, $2.3 billion above um, broken down. That provides um, amounts made available under this heading in the act may be used for grants and contracts with qualified organizations, including nonprofit entities to provide culturally and linguistically appropriate services. Well, isn't that just special? As I grab another sip of my coffee here. So the bill actually doesn't really limit anything. Um, it can go up to, 
I believe it's 5,000 a day um, immigrants that are able to uh, to come into the country. And it, it wouldn't do anything to stop that. So um, not only does this bill codify the 1.5 million illegal border crossings, but the border emergency that automatically gets implemented at 5,000 crossings per day for a week. So it's got to be 5,000 crossings per day for a week in order for this to trigger. And even if that is triggered, the president, who right now is Joe Biden, could be Trump, could be Michelle Obama, could be whoever, um, they can override that at any point in time. So what does the bill actually do? Nothing. Because the president right now could close down the border and open the border with an executive order if they want to. So, I mean, it's it's just hard for me to even, like, there's no surprises here. Like, I, I could have basically, you know, ahead of time, if I put some thought into it, be like, what would the Senate put into a bipartisan border security bill? Well, they would have um, some bullshit that didn't close the border, but made it seem like it did slow illegal immigration. Um, they would have money in there for Ukraine. They'd have money in there for Israel. And uh, they'll have money in there so they could get some to some crony partners um, where, you know, the Hunter Biden types of the world could skim off the top. So that's that's exactly what we have. We don't have a solution. We don't even have. We, we, there's there's nothing in this bill that makes the situation better. And there's a lot in this bill that makes multiple different, very complicated situations across the globe, even worse um I, I don't even know like what else to say about it at this point the the democrat party has no no interest in slowing illegal immigration um the republicans seemingly want to campaign on that interest but when they get into power they actually don't do anything um they could have done a lot more when they had the presidency congress and the senate they didn't so this is just, I mean, in my opinion, illegal immigration is something that politicians want to campaign on. And Democrats, they don't they want none. They want they want no restrictions. Which is interesting because if you look at, and I don't have it in front of me, but some of Trump's latest polling numbers do show um the uh the Latino American population, which is a large portion of the illegal immigrants coming into this country. Um, they are starting to break towards Republicans, towards Trump, which which is obviously not what the Democrats planned when they uh, brought tons in here and uh, essentially paid them off for their vote. So let's see if there's anything else I missed here before we move on. And yeah, I might come back to it one more time at the end, but it's a status quo. And of course, you have your Republicans like, you know, like Matt Gates and uh, you know, Byron Donalds coming out against it, of course, as they should be. But it, it just makes you wonder where does this where where is this going to end up? And I mean, I'm, I'll tell you where it's gonna end up. Ukraine will get funded. Israel will get funded. Um, and there will be some sort of border deal that is similar to this, maybe with the numbers tweaked a little bit lower, and maybe as negotiating um, tactic, maybe more money goes to Israel in order for some of these numbers to be lowered. Maybe they do take away the president's right with this bill to end the emergency. 
Maybe that's a negotiation. But at the same time, the president could still do it at any time with an executive order. So nothing's going to change. Nothing will change with illegal immigration. Moving on. So I want to go next to talk about um, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell, who was on 60 Minutes, an interview of 60 Minutes. I, I'm not going to play the clips because, you know, finding all those spots and uh, making sure everything was timed up right in order to play the, you know, the right Jerome Powell clip and be able to talk about it. That would have taken too long to do. And as I said, I'm on a time uh, constraint here a little bit. So just, you know, some of the you know, text from the interview, I will, uh, I will read through some different parts that I think are kind of important. Um, the one that I'll get to last is where it could be implied that he was calling Americans lazy, um, which is the part that has to do with illegal immigrants um, getting most of the new jobs in the United States post-COVID-19 lockdowns. So starting out, the interviewer asks, how would you characterize the consensus around the, the table for rate cuts? Is everyone on board? Most people, he's speaking to the entire Federal Reserve Board. Powell responds, almost all, almost all of the 19 participants who sit around this table believe that it'll be appropriate in their most likely case for us to cut federal fund rate, to cut the federal fund rate this year. So the consensus, though the thing that really comes out in people's thinking as we discuss this around the table, is that what we actually do is really going to depend on the evolution of the economy, blah, blah, blah. So if the economy were to weaken, then we could reduce rate cuts earlier and perhaps faster. So translation, this is me talking. If the economy were to weaken, so if the, the job market weakens, if more people get laid off, et cetera, then they'll cut the rates. They'll pump that money back into the system to reinflate the bubble. Continuing on, Powell says, if the economy were to prove, if inflation were to prove more persistent, that could call for a reduction in rates later and perhaps more slowly. Um, so in reality, uh, it's going to depend on incoming data as that affects the outlook. So nothing really surprising there. That's standard Federal Reserve um, liquidity, pumping money into the system, pulling money back, um, constraining the uh, the flow of money. Obviously, I'm not going to get technical with this because I am not a technical expert in all of the different um, Federal Reserve uh, monetary machines, levers that they have to uh, to move back and forth in order to uh, tweak the uh, the supply and the uh, um, you know the flexibility. My brain, my brain is right right now. I can't think of the right words, but you guys get the point. Here. You understand what is happening. There, there's nothing new. And I mean, later's interview, Powell will really go on to say that there's been times. In the past, for example, when there were the uh, the bank runs and you know several regional banks had to fold up and get sold off, they didn't see that coming at all. So, um, moving on next, Powell naturally denies that the November election has anything to do with the Fed's dramatic U-turn on rate cuts. And I, I would kind of take a section. Uh, I would take. I, I would take a, exception to the way that this question is phrased here, because. You know, I don't think this is a dramatic turn on rate cuts. I think we all expected it to play out this way. Um, if anything, 
it's a little surprising that they did get some rates as high as they have and held them this high for this long. I, I didn't think they had it in them. So, um, and honestly, I thought the economy was going to be in worse shape from it. But anyway, continuing on, the interviewer asks, your decisions inevitably are going to have a bearing on this year's election. And I wonder to what degree does that does politics determine your timing? Powell says, we do not consider politics in our decisions. We never do, and we never will. I'm sorry, it's me laughing. Um, and I think the record, fortunately, the historical record really backs that up. People have gone back and looked. This is my fourth presidential election in the Fed, and it just doesn't come into our thinking, and I'll tell you why. Two reasons. One, we are a non-political organization that serves all Americans. It would be wrong for us to start taking politics into account. Secondly, though, it's not easy to get economics on this right in the first place. These are complicated, you know, risk balancing decisions. If we try to incorporate a whole nother set of factors in politics into those decisions, it could only lead to worse economic outcomes. So we simply don't do that and we're not going to do it. We haven't done it in the past and we're not going to do it now. Um, I don't believe you. Um, it, 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 it all comes down to politics in the end. And for them to say that politics never come into their decision making, I think is pretty ridiculous. Um, if so, I mean, if we look back to the crash in 2008, George W. Bush, stock market crash, interest rates go down in the freaking to nothing. And George W. Bush famously said, we have to, we have to abandon free market principles in order to save the free market. And, you know, that's, it doesn't get much more political than that. You know, our political ideology, free market capitalism. So in order to save free market capitalism, we have to do this whole different thing with the federal reserve, quantitative easing, injecting all of this cash into the economy in order to inject liquidity in order to save free market capitalism. So in order to save our political idea, we have to do all of this other stuff with the Federal Reserve, moving all these different um, monetary levers. So the whole thing is bullshit. The whole thing is politics. Really propping up our crony capitalistic system is the Federal Reserve. Propping up our housing market and our commercial real estate um, sector, which is on the brink of collapse you have a commercial real estate sector that we're talking about in a minute here, which is worth on paper like $3.2 trillion, which in reality is probably worth close to $1 trillion, maybe $1.4 or $5 um, That's not going to work, man. And you know everything the Federal Reserve is doing is trying to keep the system that we have legitimate so people keep believing in it. So to say it's not political is ridiculous. It's very political in the sense that it is reinforcing this, uh, you know, elite managerial class that we have that controls this country. Call it deep state, call it whatever you want, call it the bureaucracy of the state. Um, it's reinforcing that these individuals, not even so much these elected idiots, who <laughs> come up with these ridiculous immigration slash Ukraine slash Israel bills. Um, it's all tied together. And sure, does Jerome Powell really care if Joe Biden's elected 
or Michelle Obama is elected or Gavin Newsom is elected or even Donald Trump or even Nikki Haley. Of course, they would love Nikki Haley. But as, as long as they have control over, you know, the over the government and Donald Trump is not going to come in and put any of that into jeopardy, um, then it's all still politically controlled, man. And it's all about politics. If it wasn't about politics, they would let the economy crash. They would let all of this bad debt be liquidated and start fresh. If it was, if, if it wasn't politics, that's what it would be. And we wouldn't be funding all of these wars in Ukraine and now Yemen and Israel and all these all these different proxy wars, the U.S. government, through the mechanism of the Federal Reserve, wouldn't be doing that. But it's it's all political, hundred percent. So moving on to commercial real estate, the interviewer asked, "The value of, of commercial office buildings all across the country is dropping as people work from home. Those buildings support the balance sheets of banks." All across the country, what is the likelihood of another real estate, real estate-led banking crisis? Pretty simple question. Lays out without saying numbers. Basically, commercial real estate. He didn't say this, but on on paper, in reality, the value is probably two thirds of it, probably sixty percent different, which is crazy. Um, so Powell responds, "I don't think that's likely." Interesting. Let's see why. Um, so what's happening is, as you point out, we have work from home. You have weakness in the office real estate and also retail, downtown retail. You have some of that, and there will be losses in that. We look at the larger banks' balance sheets. He's talking about you know, J.P. Morgan Chase and <clears throat> PNC Bank and Citi and all these huge banks that bought up all of these regional banks um, during the uh, the banking crisis. Continuing on. Okay. It appears to be a manageable, manageable problem. There's some smaller and regional banks that have concentrated exposures in these areas that are challenged. And as you know, we're working with them. There's something we've been aware of you know, for a long time, and we're working with them to make sure that they have the resources and a plan to work through their blah, 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 expected losses. There, are, there will be expected losses. It feels like... A, I wonder what the expected losses are, though. Um, it feels like a problem we'll be working on for years. This is interesting. I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, it's a sizable problem. I don't think doesn't appear to have the makings of the kind of crisis that we've seen sometime in the past, for example, with the global financial crisis. So interviewer says, you believe it's manageable. Powell appears to be. Um, interviewer says, we're not going to see bank failures across country as we did in 2008. Powell says, I don't think there's much risk of a repeat of 2008. I also think you know we need to be careful about making proclamations about the uh, particularly about the future. Um, things have surprised us a lot, but no, on this, on this, I do think it's a manageable problem. I think we're doing a lot to manage it. There will be, certainly, there will be some banks that have to be closed or merged out of, uh, out of existence because of this. That'll be smaller banks, I suspect, for the most part. You know, these are losses. It's a secular change in the use of downtown real estate, and the result will be losses to owners, blah, blah, blah. lenders should be manageable. And, it's interesting the way he phrases this. So he keeps saying there's going to be banks failing, there's going to be losses, and they're going to be bought up. So essentially all they are doing is they're going to be um, taking these losses, this uh, li liquidated debt, this bad debt, 
in folding it into the bigger banks. And likely, I would think, because the Fed has done this in the past, um, the Fed will maybe be somehow forgiving or buying off this bad debt, this debt that is worth nothing, this debt that should be liquidated. So it'll be interesting to see how the Fed manages that. They think they're going to be able to do so without causing a huge wave throughout the economy. I, I don't know if that's possible because I think it's important to point out not only the banks who have these investments, massive investments in commercial real estate, but also you know pension plans, 401ks um, are all tied up in commercial real estate investing. So, you know, this isn't just something where it affects, you know, somebody loses their nine to five job at a bank because, you know, their, their bank went under and folded. Um, this is more so the a risk being someone loses their entire retirement um, stock market, taking a, a massive plunge, which this stuff should happen, really. I mean, we're having a major, I mean, just think about it this way. We're having a major change in the way we do business in this country. It's crazy to think that we can get through that without a massive response to it. And they can take that response and they can spread it out over 10 to 15 years and just kill the economy and hold down economic growth, or they can allow the debt to liquidate and we can start over and build an economy that makes sense where we don't have all of these freaking empty office buildings in a, in a downtown location where those buildings could be reacquired at a much lower cost and someone could build something useful there. You know, it, maybe it would be easier to build housing there. Or I, I don't know, knock them down and build green spaces. I have no idea. Or maybe they just sit there vacant because it doesn't make sense to invest even in knocking them down. I have no idea, but let the market plan that out. Let's not keep sort of, uh, trying to mold the the, uh, the relics of an old lost world into um, the current reality um, that we're moving forward into, which does not have a need for these massive office buildings in many uh, U.S. cities. Okay, last thing about this interview with Jerome Powell. I'm just checking my feed here. We are still good. Um, last thing here. So... Hey, we're going to take a real quick break to hear about the sponsor for today's show, and that sponsor is Crowd Health. If you're a person who has had any interaction with uh, the healthcare industry and health insurance, then you are absolutely frustrated. I'm sure you've dealt with paying for things you're not supposed to pay for, having to get tests that you don't want to get, and just the general frustration of having no transparency in your healthcare. And that's without even getting to the part where really healthcare insurances, you end up paying and putting your money towards maybe some surgeries and some things that you don't agree with, either from a faith perspective or from just a moral perspective. So let's talk about an alternative to health insurance. And that's what Crowd Health is. Crowd Health is not health insurance, it is a, a better way to pay for your health care. So for $175 for an individual, 
or 575 for a family of four, you're going to get access to a community of people, like-minded individuals like you, liberty-minded, freedom-oriented people who are willing to help out in the event of an emergency. You'll get access to telemedicine visits, discounted prescriptions, and so much more. So and this is without doctors' networks getting in the way. CrowdHealth is actually going to help you to find um, the doctors that will fit your needs. And of course, you get to join this crowd, the like-minded people, people just like you. Allow CrowdHealth to help you with your healthcare needs. Get started today for just $99 per month for your first three months. $99, first three months. You're going to do that by using code LIONS at joincrowdhealth.com. CrowdHealth is not health insurance. Learn more at joincrowdhealth.com and join the crowd today. Code Lions. Talking about uh, job gains and the the gains of illegal immigrants over the past several years. So, um, the interviewer says, "Why was immigration important?" Powell says, "Because you know immigrants come in and they tend to work at a rate that is at or above that for non-immigrants." I'm gonna say that again. So he says. Immigrants come in and they tend to work at a rate that is at or above that for non-immigrants. Immigrants who come to the country tend to be in the workforce at a slightly higher level than Native Americans, but that's largely because of the age difference. They tend to skew younger. So what he's saying is just at a percentage rate comparing illegal immigrants to, um, to Americans that a higher percentage of illegal immigrants are in the workforce than are regular Americans, and he's saying that has a lot to do with age difference. I would say probably, probably somewhat, yes, but also they are working more. They are in the workforce more, and they're taking jobs that um, Americans don't want. Um, and you know, you, you could say that Jerome Powell is calling Americans lazy here um, by using the data. I think he is, and I don't necessarily think that he's wrong. I, I feel like, especially. Um, when you look at just, you know, just, just the, the, in trades, welders, electricians, plumbers, um, we have a huge, um, resource gap for those trades. And I'm, I'm not sure if it's Americans being lazy. I think it's Americans have been sold a bill of goods and I think are starting to realize that, that they have been, especially, you know, those, you know, maybe 30 and younger now. Where I think you are seeing more people realize instead of going to college, so people in their you know eighteen to twenty now in that range, so what's that generation Z still? Um, maybe some of them are starting to realize that yes, let's use go, take the route, the trade route, make money here, make six figures being a plumber rather than spending six figures going in debt on an education and maybe not even getting a job that pays that when you get out. So I think that shift is is happening slowly. Um, maybe not as quickly as as there needs to be, but um, I just, a lot of illegal immigrants are in position when they come here. Of course, they're going to work because they have nothing else. A lot of them are are propped up, you know, in New York City in these hotels or in California in these sanctuary cities where they get all this stuff for free. That's actually making this number this number could be even more stark 
with an even higher percentage of illegal immigrants working. But when they're getting everything paid for, of course, they're not going to work as much. So end that stuff, and they can come over, and they can just go right into the workforce and add value to society. Who wouldn't want that? If they're here, they might as well be adding value. All right, let's look here at this end of this conversation. Is there anything else that Jerome Powell says that's worthwhile with regards to immigration? The interviewer says, why is immigration so important to the economy? Um, Powell says, well, first of all, immigration policy is not the Fed's job. The immigration policy of the United States is really important, really uh, much under discussion right now. Um, that's none of our business. We don't set immigration policy, policy. We don't comment on it. I will say over time, though, the U.S. economy has benefited from immigration. And frankly, just in the last year, a big part of the story of labor market coming back in a better balance is immigration returning to levels that were more typical of pre-pandemic era. So the interviewer says the country needs more workers. Powell says it did. And so that's what's been happening. Um, yeah, I, I think that's... That is a fair way to look at it. I mean, I mean, if you look at charts of um, employment, uh, U.S. citizens versus illegal immigrants over the past 20 years, and you see COVID in there, um, all of the jobs added after COVID, added to the economy. So once we got back up to our regular level, all of the new jobs, it's all immigrant labor. So I think it was needed. And I think actually to go a little bit more nuanced than that, I think we have in many ways built an economy that, for example, in the restaurant sector, we have so many freaking restaurants, especially in highly populated areas that with the cost of food, with the cost of everything in order to pay people enough to work at those restaurants and to keep the, the price of food at a reasonable level, you need to have super inexpensive labor in order to, to do that. So it's like a it, it's a meeting of, you know, inflation has driven up the costs of running the restaurant. The only way to keep your restaurant open is to have labor at the lowest rate possible. And I think in the short term, in the near term, we've seen that labor gap has been filled with illegal immigrants. I think in the long term, a lot of that labor gap, especially fast food, McDonald's, Wendy's, et cetera, is going to be filled with, uh, with robots, with automation. And you just have a couple people, maybe more highly skilled people who are managing all that. And you won't have many humans at all, especially in fast food. Of course, customer service, more high-end dining. I don't think that that'll change. But it is it is interesting how in market segments like restaurants that I think definitely illegal immigration has kind of fit naturally into um, filling a resource gap, which it's interesting. Um, it's uh, it's definitely real. All right, so to get back to what I want to talk about last, and this is a longer video. It's about four and a half minutes long. I do want to encourage you to uh, listen to it or watch it if you're um, watching along on YouTube or Rumble um, until the end. And this is a teacher who's um, really uh, dissecting some claims made by a student. Looks like they're talking in an office hour situation. And uh, the teacher is guiding this student on how to think critically with regards to their opinion on J.K. Rowling's. So as I bring up my screen share, 
So share the, you know, I, I do this so many times and half the time that I do screen shares, I do something wrong. So I forget to make sure the audio shares. And then when I go to, you know, produce this and everything, I have to go back and take something out and add it in the video again, because I forgot to share the audio. But this time, this time, my friends, I think I have it. And here we go. So here is a teacher, a teacher teaching a student how to think critically. So these guys want to talk about JK Rowling. Is that, so what's going on with that? What do you want to know? Uh, she's, she's had a pretty controversial past. I just want to know, like, what are your thoughts on it? And like, do you still like her work despite her uh, bigoted opinions? So let's get specific though. Let's define bigoted opinions. What opinions are bigoted? We're going to treat this as a thought experiment. I'm not going to say yeah. what's right or wrong or what way to think. The whole point is to learn how to think, not what to think. Yeah. yeah. So when you say bigot, you, you're you're starting with the conclusion that, given her bigoted opinions. Yeah. So first, her, uh, let's start with: Does she have bigoted opinions? So when you when you say bigoted, opinions, she has had a history of being extremely transphobic. I've heard. And you've heard. So what? Can you give me an example? Uh if you look at her Twitter, I think uh, you could see a few things. Um, if you want, I could try and find yeah, see something. If you can find, see if you can find one. So, one of these tweets that she came up with in 2019, she said, Dress however you please, call yourself whatever you like, sleep with any consenting adult who will have you um, live your best life in peace and security, but force women out of their jobs for starting that for stating that sex is real. So you find that bigoted? What do you find about it? Was, there? It was deemed transphobic. Like, I myself... Do you find that transphobic yourself? Uh, I don't really have an opinion on it, but I'm just going with what a lot of other people have said. So a let's pause it. Let's not go with what other people are saying. Let's try and learn how to critically think. So let's analyze the tweet ourselves. So that statement... Do you see anything problematic disregarding other people's opinions? Um, she did try and pin some things on a, spe a specific group of per of people. Where does she Where does she do that? Do that? Can you read that? But force women out of their jobs for stating that sex is real. So when I hear that, I'm interpreting that as meaning. If a woman says that, you know, saying that there is a difference between men and female and then being attacked as transphobic, I think that's what she's saying by attacking someone for stating that sex is real. That is exactly what she's saying. Is that I, transphobic to you? So, to me, no. Stating that sex is real is not transphobic. It's just a fact of life. It exists. So is there anything you disagree with in that tweet? Uh... In that tweet, I can't really see anything that I myself disagree with, but I can see why some people would think, oh, this is offensive. We can't have that here or something. Because Sure. Uh, there's an apology tweet. Um, she? Let's read that. What did she say there? I haven't read that. I respect every trans person's right to live any way that feels authentic and comfortable to them, I'd march with you if you were discriminated against on the basis of being trans. At the same time, my life has been shaped by being female. 
I do not believe it is hateful to say so. Um, you see anything problematic there? She's apologizing, so no, not really. Um, if I if I could read it again, it sounds like a, the same, a very similar statement as what she was just saying. She's basically saying like, I have nothing to me. This is what I interpret as I have nothing against someone being trans exactly. in your life, but you just don't get to impose on my. You can live how you want. I can live how I want. Yeah. And let's all, you know. Exactly. So I guess now, so now that we're looking at it like, oh, there's not much difference between me or her. Do you, how, why do you, do you think it's fair that there's a, that she's being attacked by a large group of people and people are calling her? Like you said, at the beginning of this conversation, you said, given the fact that JK Rowling is transphobic, how do you feel about Harry Potter? Now, yeah. retroactively looking at that statement, do you think that that was the best way to phrase? No, I feel like an idiot now. <laughs> it's okay though, but this is why we do this to learn to yeah. learn how to think. All right, that I mean, that's pretty cool. Um, and kudos, kudos to there being teachers like that out there. That's uh, that's freaking awesome. So let's let's kind of talk through how this is broken down because I think it's important for really for a couple of reasons. Um, I think first it's, it's important to point out, and this is true for literally everyone. It's true for me. It's true for you. We all get our opinions assigned to us. And that's true. If you're watching CNN, Fox news, or if you are, you know, getting your news from Twitter. So we all have to be cognizant of this as we're processing the news we're processing what we what we think about it and we're and we're generating our own opinion because everyone is trying to assign an opinion to us and what happens is you know the sources that we've identified as being that's an accurate source that's a factual source these people know what they're talking about once we let our guard down on that it becomes much easier for them to assign their opinion to us um so just to and i think it's good for all of us, as we do, you know, as we encounter news, as we encounter opinions throughout, you know, throughout the day, um, be it on Twitter or, or a podcast or, or wherever, um, to really think about, you know, to use to use this teacher's exercise on ourselves. So, what do you want to do first? You want to look at the definitions, um, you know, the the, the different uh, elements of that opinion. Um, what, what are, you know, what are the def, what are the, the important words that are used and do you share a common definition with, you know, the person whose opinion this is, if it's an opinion you, you disagree with or, um, or agree with, if it's an opinion you disagree with, start looking there at the words that are used at the quotes, quotes that are used, the context, does this opinion or, or um, can I see how someone else would view this a little bit differently, how this word is being defined? I mean, you know, something I think libertarians um, in general fall into the trap of, we want to start using our own language, um, our definitions for words that very well are accurate and, and, and true. Um, anarchy comes to mind for one, when, you know, when anarcho-capitalists are, are defending anarchy, and sure, that's okay to do that um, when you're talking to people who understand 
anarchy determined, anarchy um, defined as you know the absence of of government, the absence of coercion. Yes, that that's that's good to use it then. But when you're talking to 95 percent of the population who thinks that anarchy is chaos and people you know throwing uh, Molotov cocktails through Starbucks windows, that's their definition of anarchy. Then you have to figure out a different way to communicate. Because if you're not on the same page in definitions, then there's no way that you can persuade anyone to your side, to, to your opinion, because they're just not going to understand it. So review the opinions in the news, in whatever you're, um, whatever you're reviewing. Analyze for yourself. Try to put, your person, put yourself in the other person's shoes. Steel man their argument, if you will. And, uh, you know, you want to... If you can d- disregard to a certain degree, um, you know the opinions that are are not. How do I want to say this? Um, so the opinions that that we bring into um, looking at a piece of news, looking at the opinion of a celebrity, um, the only way to really get the root of the truth of the matter is to initially disregard our opinions. You have to put those to the side and just go to the basis, to the facts of what is there that's making up this opinion that is coming back at us, right? Does that make sense? Hopefully that made sense. I kind of said that in a, uh, in a confusing way, but with all this being said, guys, um, I I think it's, I think it's important and to kind of wrap everything up here today. Um, there's going to be a lot of people out there in the news talking about this immigration deal and how terrible it is. And, you know, I can't believe that these these three senators came together and came up with such a piece piece of garbage. And that's very true. That's all very true. Um, But you will, you'll see it in the next week, the next two weeks, you'll see shifting around and there will become like this consensus from different influencers as opinions are bounced back and forth. And there will be a very similar deal, which is going to be signed into law probably within the next month. That is not very different than this. That would be my guess. But for some reason, the certain influencers on the right and on the left and politicians on the right and the left, their opinions will change in a line to enough of a degree that they're able to basically approve the same exact um, package. So it is what it is. It's the world we live in. And, you know, of course I do talk about politics on this show. I talk about the current events of the day on this show, but I also bring on people and interview people who are out there making moves in the world. I got several interviews like that lined up in the next couple weeks. Um, it's important to understand politics, important to understand, be able to break down current events and to be able to break through the noise of the uh, you know assigned opinions that are being forced down our throat um, all the time, but it's also important to be able to focus on the main thing, the things that are going to affect our lives um, the most, and that is you know what we what we do for to make a living, um, the businesses we have, the people we interact with, the relationships we have. It's going to be our families. It's going to be our kids. Um, it's going to be our, our local communities. And 
focusing your focusing your time and energy in places where you can make a difference ultimately is much better than focusing our time and energy trying to trying to uh convince the world um that they need to agree with how we feel about immigration legislation or Jerome Powell. So with, with everything I just said, while it is important, I, I say this to say, let's keep things in perspective and focus on the things you, you can control the focus on the things that are going to affect happiness in your life and bring more happiness into your life. I'm not trying to be all, all woo woo um, with it, but you know, I think we lose sight of that. We lose uh, we lose sight of how much control we have over our lives. There's this narrative, I think, in uh, when you start getting into breaking down politics and you get focused on all of these terrible things that these politicians and these corporations are doing, that you start thinking, all of this is out of control. I can't even control my life. I, no, you can. You can make decisions today, you can, that are going to make your life better tomorrow starts with what you decide to eat starts with how much you decide to sleep starts with if you go to the gym and get get a workout in so not to not to lecture here um at the end of the show but it's important the stuff that you know i talked about today the stuff that brian you know talks about on his show the stuff is very important but let's stay focused on you know improvement focus on improving yourself focus on improving your your position in life ultimately, so you can do the same to help others. And that message, that message is brought to you by the Lions of Liberty Pride. If you like this show, if you like Brian's show, um, you should consider joining us, joining the Lions of Liberty Pride, um, lionsofliberty.locals.com, patreon.com slash lionsofliberty. Honestly, I think I'm forgetting how to say the URLs anymore. I don't know what's what's. I think I must have burned those brain cells this uh, this past weekend. But um, check it out, guys. Uh, we would love to have you on board. We have bonus content that Brian does a, a quick five minute um, current events show almost every weekday. We have our secrets, lies, and cover ups conspiracy show. Degenerate gamblers will be starting back up. So we have a bunch of uh, bonus shows that we. Um, bring to you throughout the year. Plus there's a uh, you know, community with us. We have our Mufasa group, which is a certain level where we have a, you know, a monthly call, a monthly uh, Zoom call, just talking about whatever. And uh, yeah, so check it out. We'd love to have you in the Lions of Liberty Pride. And you know, if you've joined the Pride or if you haven't and you like the show, the other thing you can do to help is to subscribe. Subscribe on your your podcatcher. Subscribe on YouTube. Subscribe on Rumble. Subscribe on your parents' podcatcher. Your parents' YouTube. Your parents' Rumble. Your your significant other. Whoever. Subscribe everywhere. It helps us, and uh, ultimately we can bring this show to more people. So, with all of that being said, can't believe I talked for almost fifty minutes. Hopefully. <laughs> You all have a great week coming up this week. I'll be back at least the next three to four weeks with interviews. So be ready. Going to be great content. Talk to you all next week. In the meantime, always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning. <laughs>